shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. And this do, knowing the time, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Let's pray. Lord, there are some of us who are so earthly-minded, we're of no heavenly good. There are some of us who are so heavenly-minded, we're of no earthly good. As we read this passage, we understand that uh, there is a balance to be maintained, the kind of balance that characterized our Lord Jesus, who, though he came from heaven and returned to heaven, lived out a perfect life here on earth, and that's our desire as well. We'd like to understand how to do that. We'd like to learn from this passage what it means to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. We'd like to understand what it means to live in the night in the light of the day. And so as we look at this passage, give us understanding. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been making our way through the uh, book of Romans slowly and steadily and hopefully methodically. We looked at the first two and a half chapters of Romans and Paul's uh, concern with sin. And then the next two and a half chapters, the uh, solution, which is the salvation, which our Lord Jesus brought from heaven to earth. And then uh, the next three chapters that deal with the process of sanctification, how we grow and become what what God wants us to be. And then those three real tough chapters, chapters 9, 10, and 11, dealing with with God's sovereignty and the way he deals with his people. And now we've come to what, what sometimes is referred to as the practical section of the book of Romans, a term that, as you know, I dislike because I feel it's all very, very practical. Paul's concern here in these chapters is how we change. He... He takes a lot of the, of the theory, a lot of the theology, and he begins to talk in terms of how God actually begins to change us. Change seems so haphazard and so ad hoc from our standpoint. It's difficult to, to see much happening to us, but from God's standpoint, there is a plan, and he's working it out perfectly. The question is, how is he doing it? What's our part? What's his part? Paul tells us from in chapter 12, verse 1, that our part is simply to make ourselves available to God, to present our bodies a living sacrifice, to let God know that we're available to him, to be put to his intended purpose. We'll go anywhere. We'll do anything. We'll become whatever he wants us to become. We lay our life on the line. Or to put it as Paul puts it, we put our bodies on the line. 
And once we do that, he begins then to renew our mind. He begins to teach us to think his thoughts after him. And we become characterized by what Paul in Philippians calls the mind of Christ. And that then becomes the key to change in terms of our actions. Once our attitudes are aligned with his, then our actions begin to conform. Now, Paul has been talking about about love in this section because that's the hallmark of authentic Christian faith. If we're really changing, if we're really becoming more and more like our Lord Jesus, then, then we ought to be characterized by the same kind of love that characterized him. That's what the world needs. As we saw a couple of weeks ago, the, that's the way we change the world. That's the way we change our circumstances. That's how evil is overcome. It's by loving people, loving our enemies, and loving those that despitefully uh, use us, uh, loving even though our love is not uh, returned. It's unrequited love. And as Brian pointed out last week, uh, loving those that uh, are in authority over us, even Old politicians need love, Paul says. And he ends with uh, that bottom line, verse 7, Render to all what is due them, tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. These are all inner attitudes that characterize people. Now he picks up again on this theme of love. I pointed out before, and I'm sure you've seen it from your own study, that The whole context from chapter 12 on is controlled by this idea of love, loving people. And he returns to that theme in verse 8. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love one another. Now, some people uh, understand from this text that we should never be in debt. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. There's nothing wrong with installment buying as long as we're not buying uh, beyond our means. We need to be good stewards of the money that God has given to us. We need to be disciplined in our use of funds. But there's nothing wrong with installment buying or buying on time because what we're doing is establishing a contract with uh, the person that we owe the money to. And as long as we're making our payments on time, then we're fulfilling the terms of that contract and we're not in violation of of this passage. And I suppose we could go on and on talking about money and stewardship from this passage. But Paul's main point is that we do have a debt that we will never discharge. And that's the debt of love. You ever, you ever think of, of people that way? We, we owe them love. The butcher, the baker, the uh, Cadillac maker, uh, the clerk in the grocery store, the person who services our car, the teacher in the classroom, the people that uh, are in authority over us, our employers, our employees, our secretaries, our spouses, our children, even our runaway, renegade children, we, we owe them love. That's an obligation they will never discharge. It's good to keep that in mind when people are rude and difficult, hard to live with. Some of you live with people that have controlling, dominating personalities and they keep upsetting your life and making things tense. And sometimes love has to be tough. We have to confront. We have to talk about the things that concern us. But but Paul makes it very clear. We have a debt of love to people around us. It doesn't make any difference how they treat us. We must treat them with, with Christ's love. Because, as he puts it, 
This is the way we fulfill the law. Remember, in our first study in chapter, chapter 12, we talked about this business of, of the will of God, testing out the will of God, discovering how good it is, proving in our own experience what, what God's will is in our life. God's will is spelled out in the law. And uh, what Paul says is that when we love people, we fulfill the law. That, that was the purpose of the law in the Old Testament. It was to teach folks how to love. We don't know how. We have to be taught to love. Men, men wouldn't know that it's all right to cast your wife away and take another wife and then cast her away and take your first wife back. If the law didn't say, you can't do that to a woman, you, she has dignity and worth and significance. You can't treat a woman like that. And, and because men are the way they are, because of the, 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 profound, uh, the profoundness of our, of our sin, it has to be spelled out for us. We have to be told not to glean the corners of the field. We have to be told not to, not to rob birds' nests. And, and all of the, the, the small things that are found in the law that basically tell us how to live in the world and in our environment and with people and and live in a loving and gracious way. It's not that the law ever saved anyone. It didn't. But the assumption of the Old Testament is that once you come into covenant with God, once you're related to him by faith, then the will of God is expressed this way in these loving actions. That's why Paul puts it this way. If you love your neighbor, you fulfill the law. And as we've said before, your neighbor is not necessarily the man or woman who lives next door to you. It's the next person you meet who has a need. Jesus made that point in the story of the Good Samaritan. When the man asked, who's my neighbor? Jesus told that story, the point of which is the next person you meet who has something that you have or who needs something that you have. Then you meet that need if you, if you possibly can, see Paul says that the law is fulfilled as we do that. Love doesn't do any wrong to a neighbor. Love doesn't commit adultery. It isn't loving. It isn't loving to the person with whom you commit adultery. Though you may call that lovemaking, it is not. Because you're, you're, you're saying by that act, I'm committed to you, but you cannot be committed to that person because you're already committed to someone else. You're already married. You can't give yourself wholeheartedly to that person. You're defrauding him or her. It's unloving to your spouse. It's unloving to your children. It's, it's unloving to your friends. It, it just creates chaos and, and hurt and heartache and pain everywhere. And as Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. Love doesn't commit adultery, doesn't murder. It seems obvious. You don't take an, another's life, nor do you assassinate his character. If you love him, you're not going to steal from him. You're not going to covet what he has. You're not going to drool over his pool. You're not going to covet his Porsche. You know, you, you're delighted when people have things that you don't have. That's what Paul calls in this chapter earlier, rejoicing when others rejoice. Uh, because God knows that what we want generally is what we will seek and try to get. So Paul says if you want to if you want to love people then take note of what God has said is loving and do those things that that are characterized by love. And in that way you fulfill the law. Why? Why? Now we come down to the 
really to the nub of the thing. This is where Paul has been moving throughout this, this chapter. This, all of this, everything from verse 1 through verse 10. This, do, knowing the time. You know what time it is? Some of you have already been looking at your watches. Uh, some of you three times. I don't mind if you look at your watches. It's when you shake them I get worried. <clears throat> now, what, what, what time is it? Do you know what time it is? Paul tells us it's time to get up. It's the hour to wake up. This is, this is the time to get out of the sack. And you get your eyes open. Now, we're not talking about people in the congregation that have been snoozing. Uh, you know uh, they, what they say about pastors. They're the only people that talk and other people sleep. We're, we're not talking about that sort of waking up. We have something else in mind. When I read this, it reminded me of, of something that a friend of mine did in a seminary class once. Apparently, it's done in a lot of seminaries because I've heard this story over and over again. But it actually happened in a class uh, I was attending. A, a friend of mine uh, worked uh, late at night. In fact, he worked all night. Had a family. He was an older fellow going to seminary. And he used to snooze through Greek class, which was the first class every Monday morning. And uh, the prof usually closed the, the class with prayer. And about halfway through the class, while the prof was droning away up there at the front of the classroom, a friend of mine kicked Bud's chair and said, Wake up. The prof called you to pray. He popped up out of his chair and started to pray right in the middle of the prof's lecture. <laughs> Dear old Dr. Lincoln said, well, bud, he said, if you're through with your devotions now, we'll move on with the class. <clears throat> it was a sort of rude awakening. But this is not what Paul is talking about. He's not talking about waking up in a boring uh, sermon or seminary class. He's rather talking about waking up from moral sleep. Why? For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. You know what's right around the corner? You know what's coming up any day now? Our Lord Jesus is coming back. That's what we look forward to. Paul describes Christians as those who love his appearing. Every other love in this, uh, in this world is, is subject to that one. That's the greatest love of all, our, our love for the Lord Jesus and our longing for him to, to come back and set things right. He's not trying to do that now. He's letting the world run its course. He's letting men do their evil. He's permitting heartache and hurt and disease and death. Though he could straighten out things in a moment if he chose to, he's, he's chosen not to do that. He's just letting things go. But one of these days he's going to come back and he's going to set it all right. That's what uh, Malachi describes in his picturesque way as the son of righteousness rising with, with healing in his wings. He uses the same metaphor that Paul uses here. One of these days the sun's going to come up. And the darkness is going to be dispelled. It's a sure thing. He promised it. The book of Acts, uh, we're told that the disciples, uh, after the Lord's resurrection and after a month or so of ministry, he took them down across the Kidron Valley up on the Mount of Olives, and they were chatting as they made their way to the top of that hill. And, and as he talked, suddenly he was, uh, 
He was taken from their sight. It was a short vertical ascent. He disappeared. And he was gone. And an angel said, what, what, what are you men doing look, looking up into, into the sky? This same Jesus, in the same manner in which he ascended, is going to come back. And one of these days he's going to appear in all of his glory. That's what Titus calls the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I don't care whether you believe in a pre-tribulation rapture or a mid-tribulation rapture or a post-tribulation rapture or if you don't have a clue when our Lord is coming back, the point is He's coming back. And as dear old Helmut Tielicke put it, when I see the Lord come back, I will say, I knew you meant it. That's His promise to us. And <laughs> we live... In the light of that, of that promise. That's our hope. You know, those of us that have been Christians for a long time have probably forgotten what it's like to live without hope. To live for today. See, if there's no hope, then yeah, let's go for the gusto. If he's not coming back, we might as well live for right now because this is all there is. So let's uh, vacate the church buildings, turn them into museums as they have in Albania and other places, you know, and and let's fire all the pastors, and uh, let's get everybody out of Christian work, and, and let's catch the silver bullet. Let's just go for the gusto, because that's where it's at. But if that's not what it's at, where it's at, if, if Jesus is really coming back, then we have hope. And that's what keeps us going when things get dark and when we're down and things are tough and we're struggling in our family and we'd like to give up on our marriage and our kids are breaking our hearts and giving us grief and we're, we're torn asunder. We know that one of these days he's going to come back and he's going to set it all right. You ever have one of those nights when you, you, know, you wake up in the middle of the night and, and the demons of the night start to torment you and you start thinking about all the money you owe and, and all the evil things you've done in your life and the wreckage that you've left behind and all the garbage that you've strewn around and, and you don't know what in the world you're going to do with your kids and you fret and stew. And, you know, I've, I've discovered a couple of things helped me. One is doing what the psalmist says to do and that is to meditate upon God himself and his adequacy, and, 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 I, and I try to do that. Another thing is to remember, because I'm old enough to know that this is what happens, that the sun's going to come up in a few hours, and I'm going to feel a whole lot better about things. And that's sort of a microcosm, I think, of what, of what Paul is talking about here. No matter how bad things get in the darkness, one of these days the Son of Righteousness will come with healing in his wings, and I, oh, do I ever look forward to that. The older I get, the more the more meaningful that becomes. Isn't it interesting the way Paul puts it? Each day our salvation is a little bit closer than the day before. Paul could say that 2,000 years ago. He said the day is about to dawn. He said, how could that be? Because Paul lived in the light of our Lord's imminent arrival. He could come at any time. And Paul also knew that at his death, that would be his Lord's coming for him. I mean, how... how how far away is the Lord's coming for you? 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years? Maximum? 60? I don't have that long. The Lord's coming for me, and, and if I live as long as my father, 40 years. I, I, I can wait that long. Every, every day, every day, I'm one step nearer home. 
You ever been on one of these long treks and you think you're never going to get there? You're climbing one of these switchback trails up here in the mountains and the sun is beating down on you and you think, you know, and you know what's up ahead. There's this beautiful lake and it's surrounded by trees. And, and you're chugging up the trail and, and you, you think, I'm never going to make it, but every step I take takes me one step closer to home. That's what Paul wants us to understand. Knowing the time, it's the time for you to wake up because now salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. The night is almost gone. 2,000 years ago, Paul could say that. The night is almost gone. And the day is at hand. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Luther, Calvin, a number of others have said that the armor of light is the Lord Jesus here because of what, what Paul says later about putting on Jesus Christ. And I'm inclined to agree. He is both our defensive and offensive armor. Actually, the word here is weaponry. Our, our weapons, both our defensive weapons and our offensive weapons, are bound up in Christ. And when we put him on, we're putting on the... The armor of, of light. I, I couldn't help but think of the of the analogy that Paul is making. You know, it's in, inappropriate to to go to work in your pajamas. You, you get up in the morning and you have your bed clothes on, so you take those off and, and you dress up. You know, if if, if you're a, a coach, you strap on your black uh, uh, shoes and your white socks and whatever. And, Hang your whistle around your neck, and you, and you go out to do your job. If you're a businessman, you put on a suit. Businesswoman, you dress as you would dress out in the world. You know, if you're going to do housework, you, you put on your overalls. You dress appropriately for the day. Tell I don't know anything about that. <laughs> you, you, you dress with decorum. That's actually the meaning of the word properly. Let us behave properly. Let's let's dress appropriately. As in the day. You see what Paul is saying? The, the, the idea that we're destined for heaven, that our destiny is fixed and sure, has meaning for life right now. It, it, it is easy to think of pie in the sky and live for that and forget about the day. But as C.S. Lewis says, there is pie in the sky. I mean, let's face it. Either there's pie in the sky or there isn't. And if there is, then it really ought to make a difference about the way we live today. A dear old Bishop Mole put it this way. Here is a community of men and women called to live under an almost opened heaven, almost to see as they look around them the descending Lord of glory, coming to bring in the eternal day, making himself present in this visible scene with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, waking his buried saints from the dust, calling the living and risen to meet him in the air, Will they not fly from the city to the hilltops and the forests of the Apennines to wait with awful joy the great lightning flash of glory? No! They somehow attend their jobs and businesses, pay their debts and their taxes, offer sympathy to their neighbors in their human sadness and joys, and yield honest loyalty to the magistrate and the prince. They are most stable of all elements in the city, though their home is in the eternal heavens. What can explain this paradox? Nothing but the fact, the person, the character of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is at once the Lord of immortality and the ruler of every detail of his servant's life. 
He is no author of fanaticism, but the king of truth and order. To know him is to find the secret alike of a life eternal and a patient faithfulness in the life it now is. That's what Paul is talking about. Knowing our destiny changes our day-to-day routine. It doesn't make fanatics out of us. It makes people that know how to live in the here and now. Now, Paul's going to spell that out. Uh, he says, all right, let's, let's be properly, not, not in carousing. Interesting word. We would say partying today. There, there, there are some people who live to party. I mean, that's their life. They can already wait for the weekend. Some of them don't even wait for the weekend. Uh, you know, they go from party to party to party, or they go from bar to bar to bar, picking fights, looking for you know, something that will make them feel better about themselves. Be a little more manly, a little tougher, a little more adequate, a little more significant, see? A, a, a little, you know, something that will give them life, make life more meaningful to them. And drunkenness, n- not in sexual promiscuity, interesting words. The only place Paul used this particular term here in the New Testament to refer to promiscuity it actually is the word for the Greek word for bed. It's based on that word, and uh, I suppose it's akin to our idiom, bedding down, or more properly, sleeping around. A lot of people live this way. They just go from bed to bed to bed to bed to bed, trying to find something that that will satisfy, that will give them a sense of worth and well-being, sensuality, just living for what feels good. Be drugs or Pornography or uh, purchasing something that will make you feel better about yourself, something you drive, something you wear, something you can, you can play with that will make you feel more important, more significant, more filled up. Not in strife and jealousy. Interesting. Well, Paul always puts the pinchers on us, you know. He, he always moves right into the... the the secret sins of the heart and the things we call little sins like causing strife, causing trouble. This is the kind of person who, wherever he or she goes, just causes things to be unsettled. Very often it's someone, as I mentioned before, with a controlling personality. You, know, you just hate to see them come home because you know the minute they walk in the front door, they're going to start griping about the kids' toys all over the place or something that hasn't been done around the house properly. It could be either man or woman, genders. Immaterial. It's just that the dominating, controlling spirit. Things have to go my way, or I'm going to make life hell on earth for you. And and it, that's that's someone who causes strife. And we can look at this uh, list and say, well, I, you know, I, I I don't party. I don't go to orgies. I you know, I don't cruise bars. But but we can be characterized by by uh, this striving spirit. Or jealousy. Uh, Gordon MacDonald had a wonderful illustration that he uses in one of his books, I've forgotten which, about picking rocks out of your field. Did, uh, any of you recall that story? You, know, you start out with the big rocks, and, and, and then you clean those rocks out, and then the, the next spring you'll find other rocks pushing up through the surface when the ground thaws, the rocks begin to push, through, and they're smaller. In fact, I've noticed in these rock, these old rock fences over near uh, Gooding, in that area of Idaho, you, the big rocks are always at the bottom. 
of the fence and the smaller rocks at the top. Well, part of that's by design, of course, because you want the bigger rocks at the bottom. But part of it is because they got the big rocks out first, and every spring they'd come through and pick up the smaller rocks and put them on the, on the top. And uh, it's a wonderful analogy, I think, of what happens in the Christian life. When we first become a Christian, God begins to put his finger on what we, we describe as some of the more gross sins in our life, sensuality and adultery and drunkenness and and then he begins to deal with what we call these little things. These are the, the little rocks in our life. The sensuality, just you know, just wanting to kick back and live a life of ease and not have to fret about anything and not, not willing to give up our pleasure when someone else has a need, you know, to bury ourselves in a book or a good TV program and, and just, just forget the world. And someone comes with a need and we don't have time for them because, we, you know, we've got to pursue our own pleasure. And there's nothing wrong with reading good books or watching a good TV program. But the problem comes in just thinking that, you know, this, 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 is, I, 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 this, this is owed to me. I have a right to demand my privacy and my peace. You know, we just become another Mr. Feelgood. You know, we, we just we like, to, like the things that make us feel good. So Paul says, let's, you know, that's like old uh, wrinkled up pajamas. Let's take those off and. And let's put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. How do you do that? How do you put on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, you get up in the morning and you immerse yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you start reminding yourself of all that you have in him. You, you say, uh, Lord, thank you. Thank you. For this day, thank you that all the demands that rest upon me this day are upon you. I don't know what I'm going to meet when I go to the office. My boss may be all out of sorts, but thank you that I can be patient with him. Because you indwell me, you're with me. And thank you that you've saved me from the guilt of my sin. I don't need to go through the day burdened by my past and Sorrowful over the things that I've done to people just this past week. And it's forgotten. You've forgotten it. And I'm loved and accepted. And, and I'm yours. And I have the hope of heaven. If I uh, have a heart attack today, I'm going to be in your presence. And it's just a matter of, of transferring from this life to another life. And frankly, I'm looking forward to it. Lord, let's uh, hasten the day. And you just immerse yourself in the Lord Jesus, you see. And you begin to walk with him through the day. And it's exactly what the, what the psalmist says in Psalm 73. He was all uh, upset and angry because people seemed to be getting away with murder. And, and they, they didn't have any room in their mind or their, their life or their time for God. And, and yet they, you know, they don't get sick like other people do that are men and women of faith. And they don't have the troubles that, that God's people have. And what is this? You know, and... And then it dawns on him that if he had really talked this way, he would have upset all of his friends and neighbors. And so he, he, begins, to, he begins to think about what he has in, in God. And he's reminded that God called him out of this uh, terrible life that he was living and led him along. And he's holding his hand right now. And then he says, and afterward he's going to take me to glory. It's one of those wonderful Old Testament intimations of, of, the, uh, of life after death. He's going to take me to glory. And it changes his whole attitude about his day, you see. And that's what we do. We, we just remind ourselves of what we have in Christ. And then what happens 
is that that big hollow spot in our life that we're trying to fill with something other than God begins to be satisfied. See, the thing that, the error that we Bible-believing Christians often make is simply to say to people that are involved in sensual pursuits and partying and drunkenness, don't do that. You know, we just say, don't, 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 don't. But we don't explain why. And the reason is because we understand that people that are doing those things are trying to find life. They're trying to find some worth, some significance, some meaning. They're trying to fill up that, that enormous vacuum that's inside that only God can fill. There's only one person who can fill that, and that's, that's our Lord Jesus Christ. There isn't anyone else. That's why John says in the, at the tail end of his little book, he, he says, this is the only God, this is the true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Little children, keep yourself from idols. Everything else is idolatry except centering your life around God. And if we center our life around our children or our marriage or partying or a condo in Sun Valley or McCall or wherever it may be, we're always going to be empty. If you listen, if, if, if you believe the TV uh, commercials, then, you know, you, you catch the silver bullet and you'll be happy like those folks are happy and and as, as I've said before, fictionalized evil always looks good. Real sin is real bad. It's very boring and dull. It doesn't satisfy. And you know that. I'm not telling you anything you don't know because we've all tried it. And, and what Paul is trying to do is save us from a lifetime of pursuits that do not satisfy. So Paul says, don't do the things that people do in the darkness. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. In other words, no plan to sin. Don't set yourself up to fall. As our Lord taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation. Don't put yourself in situations where you're inclined to fail. If you're at home some night and you're very, very lonely, and uh, some male or female friend calls you and invites you out, and you know you know before the night is out that you're going to be in bed with that person, then you just say, no, I'm, I'm sorry. And you choose to be alone with God rather than alone with your, than together with your friend. See? Or if you know that your buddies are going to go out and just hit all the bars and break them up and cause trouble, you know, you, you just stay home. That's all. Invite them to do something else, to go fishing with you. But, but you don't make provision for sin. I, I will never forget a friend of mine on Wednesday morning in our men's study standing one time. You men that are there will recall. He, he said, well, I'm on my way to such and such a city, and there's a woman executive that I work, at, work with there, and she just gives me fits, and I can't stay away from her. And he said, I, I just, I'm, I'm asking you men to hold me accountable when I get back. You ask me how things went. And we did when he got back, and things went, went well for him. See, he... He realized the weakness of the flesh. He realized how prone he is to pursue the passions of the flesh, as we all are. And so he planned not to sin. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. Plan not to sin. Well, we will sin. I mean, let's face the fact. We will. But let's don't plan on it. That's what Paul is saying. God will take care of those sins. As we commit them, we will be forgiven and restored. And we will begin to grow in our capacity to, uh, to resist temptation and, 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 you know, that we can deal with sin that way. But Paul says one of the, one of the responsibilities we have is just don't, don't provide for it. Don't make provision for it. Don't plan for it. See? 
but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we do that, he begins to, he begins to work in our heart to change our mind in order to change our actions. And we will begin to grow up under the full stature of, of Christ. And whenever I read this passage, when the time is gone, let, let me just make this final comment. I, I always think of Augustine, the uh, fourth century Christian, and, and his conversion. Augustine was a, a young philosopher in the city of Milan. His mother was a Christian. His father was not. His father was a Roman uh, unbeliever, probably an atheist. And uh, uh, Augustine lived a very profligate life. He, uh, uh, when he left home, he immediately moved in with a young woman. He had several illegitimate children. He, he partied. Uh, he was like uh, so many uh, college professors today. He found many opportunities on the college campus uh, to let the flesh have its fling. And he did. But he couldn't get away from Monica's love for him. Monica was his mother and her instruction from the word. He couldn't get away from it. And uh, life just became more and more empty for Augustine. And one day he was sitting on the on a park bench in a garden in Milan with his friend Ambrose, who actually who was a Christian, later became the bishop of Milan. And they were chatting. And Augustine says, oh, tomorrow, 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 who will free me from these sins that are destroying me? Such an ache in his heart. You read his confessions and, and you sense what a, what a hunger he had to set things right. He couldn't stop. And uh, he heard some children singing in a, a park nearby. And they were chanting something in Latin, tola lege, tola lege, some game they were playing. And he construed it to mean pick up and read, pick up and read. And so he reached over and he picked up a scroll of the book of Romans that he had been reading before that his friend Ambrose had given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and his eyes fell on this very passage. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And let me give you Augustine's words. He said, I read in silence the first place on which my eyes fell. I neither cared to nor needed to read further. At the close of the sentence, as if a ray of certainty were poured into my heart, the clouds of hesitation fled away at once. And he yielded his heart to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And he became the Augustine of whom we've read so much and whose writings affected profoundly the church even, even to this day. And if your heart hungers like that, you may be a believer. You may have entrusted your life to Christ, but you, you're still trying to fill your life, as so many of us do, with, with things that will never satisfy. As Jeremiah puts it, we're digging cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water, and, and we're not willing to come to the fountain, the source of water itself. Perhaps that's where you are, though you know Christ you're still very much an idolater in the sense that you're trying to satisfy your life with drugs, and alcohol, or sex, or something that you buy, some possession that, that, you, that you long for that you think will satisfy you. Or maybe that you're trying to control things. You know, you feel so insignificant and so empty inside. Your way of gaining significance is to, is to dominate and tyrannize and control people. I, I don't know what what your problem I know what my problems were I, I don't know what yours were but, but it's some form of idolatry that we're trying to substitute for God himself may I encourage you to do what, what Augustine did this morning 
and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps you've never heard this before. You've been drinking out of broken cisterns and looking for something to satisfy, and it, and it just won't satisfy. I just I want to commend to you the Lord Jesus Christ. Put him on. Put him on. Someone described the process of, uh, of salvation as God's unencumbered plan. I like that. That's what it is. So simple. And yet so hard. And we want to do it ourselves. And the Lord says, I want to do it for you. Just put me on. And I'll give you what you've been longing for all of your life. Let's pray. Will you stand, please, and let's pray together. Bow your heads and your hearts before the Lord. And let's all of us examine our hearts. What is it that we're that we're trying to satisfy ourselves with? What what have we turned to to give us meaning and hope and significance in life other than God Himself? We've been trained to think all of our lives that uh, being married or having children or having a lover or having a, a good job or affluence or athletic achievement, those are the things that give meaning to life. And, and many of us have run the, run the string out. We've tried it all. We've done it all. And, and there's just nothing there any longer. And we have to say with Augustine, who can deliver me? from this body of sin. And we want you to know that that it's the Lord Jesus who delivers. He came to save us from sin and the consequences of sin. Will you put him on? Will you ask him to be your Savior and Lord? If you've done that in the past, will you remind yourself that he is the answer to your innermost longing? Jesus said, He who comes to me out of his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. He's the only source of life. Come to him. Lord, you ask us to, those of us that are heavy laden of heart, to come and you'll give us rest. You'll take the burden off of our back. And you'll assume the load that we've carried and we can walk along yoked with you and fellowship with you and enjoying your presence and finding in you the, what we've been looking for all of our life. And then we know one of these days we'll just step from this life into your presence forevermore. And we look forward to that. We long for your coming. We hope it's soon. As John prays, even so come, Lord Jesus, come and, and set this world right and rid us of the Sins in the flesh that plague us, the compulsive behaviors, the habits, the, the problems that we carry around in our bodies simply because of the consequences of sin. We look forward to that day. Thank you for your promise that you're coming again. Help us to live in that light, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.